Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Jen Craig. Jen is the author of Since the Accident and Panthers and the Museum of Fire. She's also a teacher and an artist. She joins us from her home in Katoomba. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Can we start uh, with where you grew up? Reading your books, I feel like we must have traced each other's steps around Sydney. So where did you grow up? I actually grew up on the North Shore, the upper upper North Shore, in Moronga. Yeah. And uh, in... Two different houses in Wollonga, one one small one. I think it's fairly close to the oh, the motorway that goes up to Gosford now, yeah. which is why my parents had to move, and and then they moved a few streets away to this huge, badly designed house, which was very hot. <laughs> <laughs> my dad designed it. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up on the North Shore, then I imagine you trekked slightly further. Uh, south and to the east and lived you know close to the city so where did you go after that yeah now first I moved to Camperdown and uh Enmore then overseas for a couple of years um I taught in Turkey Istanbul and then when we moved back Darlington sort of sort of Chippendale Darlington at the time, it was called uh, Chippendale, but um, we just got used to calling it Darlington because that's what it was, yeah. So this is all very inner East Sydney. And I, mm. my first job after school was in this same area. And I feel mm-hmm. like, in a way, I trekked the same walk up and down Broadway that your character in uh, Panthers treks uh, over her journey. And both books are kind of filled with geography how important is geography and location in your writing Mm. I think geography the feeling of a place is important Um, and what kind of movements away and and back again the shapes that we make in the journeys yeah I mean, somehow it's, I think for me, it's a movement rather than the actual place itself, apart from the fact, the, the ambience of it, the, the mood of it. Um, I'm a real creature of habit. So I got so used to living around <laughs> Darlington and I just loved being, being able to walk everywhere. Yeah, movement, journey. I think that's what's most important about landscape for me. I think it's interesting you say that because I feel like the the characters in both your books, they are journeying and they're kind of displaced though. And they both have an ambivalent relationship with, I think, Sydney especially <laughs> and their families and other places like that. But I find that really fascinating about your work because I feel like your characters are both di- displaced in both of your novels. Mm-hmm. They're both kind of displaced from their world a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a restlessness in those characters, um, a restlessness to become something, to go somewhere, to um, to find a solution by going somewhere or returning 
somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Being between places probably. Mm. That that's that's pretty much right. Yeah. I think one of the fascinating things is is that you in your books you travel relatively short distances, but the actual characters themselves travel long distances. So with um with Jen in the Panthers book, like she travels all the way pretty much to, you know, to the foot of the Blue Mountains. And in, you know, your other book after the accident, your character obviously is all the way over from from a long time in Paris and then ends up down in Cogra near the hospital with her sister. And so I feel like your your books have a lot more mileage in them than the actual distance covered. I think the mental mileage that they cover mm. is far more than the physical mileage because, for example, with um, Panthers, you have a character who essentially walks from Glebe to Surrey Hills, and I've done that walk many times. I used to walk up from, you know, from basically Glebe to Central Station, which is the other side of Surrey Hills, and it's approximately 2Ks. Like it's not, it's not a long walk. Even if you walk right up the hill, you know, it's maybe three Ks if you're lucky. Your other character, you know, she pretty much, she goes from where she's living, maybe North Shore, over to Cogra, which again is, you know, 20 Ks. But essentially the, the mental distance that they travel within those books, the fact that they go to places like the Blue Mountains, where you are now, they go to places like Paris and they end up in places like Sydney, I think is really interesting. And uh, the fact that they take a lot of emotional baggage with them probably makes those journeys all the much heavier. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely right. They have a lot of mental baggage and there's a lot to sort. Um, and I think that's where the, the actual journey, if you like, the short journey um, gives a capacity um, like the small journey offers a offers a time and a and a pace to to un, yeah, unpack and turn out sort of strew around <laughs> yeah the thoughts yeah I think the walking novel offers a really interesting insight into the way people think and especially in your book um, Panthers in the Museum of Fire walking seems such a central point of the book and the fact that she's traveling somewhere and thinking and moving other places mentally, I think makes the book so much more interesting. And it, um, it really makes you walk with the character. It gives the novel a pace and it gives the novel these um, beautiful like points where you're traveling with her, you know where she is. And especially for someone like me who knows those streets so well, it gives the, the mind like this map of where she's going the whole way through, which I think is just, for me anyway, it's like dug so deeply into my brain when I read it. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. And yet it sort of flickers in and out. I mean, there there is a, sometimes there's danger in, in getting across a road and, mm. and an annoyance going past a particular point on the, on the route. Um, there's, there's a kind of... Um, conflict if you like between what's going on inside the head and where the body is going or trying to get to and um, I think some of the thoughts are propelled by the need to move or perhaps I could say the other way around actually the walk comes from the need to move which comes from the thoughts 
Mm. I think there's one point in the end of Panthers where Jenny's walking up the hill and there's someone with a wheelchair, I think, and she's worried about him backing down the hill and running people over. And then she just switches thoughts in a second and just keeps moving. And <laughs> yeah, so I feel that, yeah, I feel you're completely right with that. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of at loggerheads, which creates, I hope, the, a kind of a different energy, not just the energy of the actual physical traversing of the map, but um, the, the space that we go to when we read it or when I write it. Yeah. Mm. We'll talk about your first novel after the accident. It's about, it's sadly out of print, but it's about a woman who returns to Sydney. She spent years overseas and she goes to see her older sister. She's recovering from an accident. That's the title of the book. The book is far more a meditation on art and relationships and families. Mm. And the central character experiences all of these things. What inspired you to write that book? Ah, okay. It's actually called Since the Accident, and I notice most people call it after the accident. Um, and, um, and it's something about the since the accident, if you like. Well, I suppose we could say it with after the accident as well. It's like we, the, the way we make, um, we account for where we are now from a point in the past, like this is between the point in the past and now, this has all come about as a as a result of this thing that happened in the past, like the accident. I I was just really interested by there was a few um, a few images that were sort of haunting me. I suppose the the idea of of the meaning that someone can can draw from a coincidence um, of um, having an accident and someone being there and um, coincidentally saving them, but how that can actually take on a meaning in a person's head and that meaning can snowball into, into uh, larger and larger meanings. I sort of was really fascinated by that. And also at the same time, so it was a, there was a, that, that, that came from a seed from hearing someone talk about an experience, something like that. So it wasn't exactly the same, but um, how a relationship had come out of a coincidence, a coincidence that came out of an accident. And I can't even remember how I kind of connected this as well, but there was a, a short story by... Um, Maupassant, Boule de Suif, which, so in the original or the early versions of it, I just called it Boule, like a, because um, I was also fascinated because another dimension of it is um, what happens when people are in, in, a, in a group and someone gets the butt end of a, um, an experience and, and um, like in Boule de Suif where there's a, there's a, a young woman who is just put upon by the other people in the journey. So there's something about, there are just a few, I guess, obsessions that I had that I just, I was working and I was worrying at for, for a while and, um, and not getting particularly far with. I was sort of, I was fascinated with 
journey. So it started out with 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 um with a journeying group, a group of people, much much like a kind of Buddhist Swift scenario, and um, and I had the idea of them of people being initially marooned on an island. You know, I just had these images of people being stuck somewhere, and of course, I wrote this um, before before smartphones, you know, the, the idea of interconnectivity. People were just being marooned with each other, just stuck with each other for a while and being at the sort of being um, vulnerable to a kind of a strong interfering character that's going to, um, so that that's what I had for a while. And I, as I said, I wasn't going anywhere. And um, then there's a point where I realised I could turn it inside out and I, that's basically what I did. I, there was a point where I got one of the characters um, and I got her dominating the rest of the, the book and it's like, it felt to me like I had, I had the, the, the messy, the kind of approximate narrative that I, that I had before and I just, yeah, pulled the skin the other way around and just pulled it over itself and it just became a completely other book. And it was very exciting when it became that. And somehow I was able to combine all the, the images and thoughts and that I had in my head in the one piece. So somehow changing my attack on the piece got me able to bring it all together into one, one, one book. It's a really interesting book because you've got a few interesting aspects of the book. You've got somebody coming from overseas, an outsider coming in to visit her sister, who is uh, obviously having a bit of a renewal in terms of a few different things. She's got a new partner after this accident, the, the person who saves her. Um, she's also got this domineering mother who she's both the sisters seem to have this kind of toxic relationship with. And she's living in this shitty hotel, like a pub, basically, upstairs. And she's worried that her mother's going to disapprove of her living there. And she's got to walk up and down stairs, even though she's struggling to do that. So there's a lot of conflict going on. Um, she's also like a, an artist as well. And she's rediscovering her love of art. And this partner she picks up through this accident ends up paying for her trip up north to go to an art, uh, I guess an art conference or whatever it is, an art uh, getaway, and um, she dumps him quite soon after that. Those relationships, though, they're so strong. But I think that the those three central parts of the novel, this mother and daughter, uh, two daughters relationship, makes it so complex. And as you said before, the fact that historical kind of stuff is is there, like stuff that, you know, is from childhood and is from different stages in life is so important to this book because all of these characters seem to hold on to stuff that may not be as relevant to their lives now as it was in the past. Yeah. Yeah, they hold on to it. That's true. And they absolutely hold on to it. And, and um I kind of developed the book too to have um, there there there's sort of an unnamed or un, you know there's unspecified number of sisters there's just lots of sisters mm. and the, there's something about the gothic element of that you know there's this uncountable number of sisters um, 
and I guess the past coming through, um, insisting, intruding, in a way, yeah, that drives the, 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 the characters in, in the now. It kind of takes over the now. Yeah, I was, I was fascinated by that. I find it interesting as well because the central character, she's unnamed in the book, but she comes from overseas. And I feel like that in Australia especially, I feel like some of us, we leave the country and we kind of leave ourselves in a way. And we kind of, if we do come back, we've come back to a world that, you know, we feel like hasn't changed. And we come yeah. into a world with all of our preconceived notions and we come back to it, even though things are probably slightly different. I feel like our character is a really um, great proponent of that idea where she's flown back in, assuming everything's the same and things are quite different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly, um, I wasn't away for very long when I was, you know, when I um, was living in Istanbul, but I remember coming back and sort of expecting, because um, there was all sorts of people I lent, we'd lent um, various pieces of furniture, some of my paintings, um, and it wasn't a, it wasn't, it was only a couple of years, but some people had forgotten about it, given away um, the objects, yeah. I did. I do remember expecting to come back to the point where I'd lost. I mean, I'd left. I should say, and um, they they were in a completely different place. And I that was fascinating. My expectation too, and I think um, for good and bad, in the sense of I expected them to be stuck in the way that I was actually stuck. <laughs> And I love that. I love I love realizing that's not that's not the case. I love noticing what's different about my expectation and um, what's actually going on in reality. And you know, that's a kind of frisson between those things. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is an Australian thing or not, but I feel like you know, in a way, this experience might be uniquely Australian, where we do kind of we tend to want to leave Australia or leave our little, you know, place of, of home and then come back to it many years later and, you know, it's not the same and it's not as good as we wanted it to be. And I think with you, both of your characters in these two books, I feel like there is a certain level of dissatisfaction with where they are. Mm. Like, do you think that's something that's true? Yeah, I think they're just very dissatisfied. I think they don't know why they're dis dissatisfied. I don't. I'm not sure if they're aware, they're aware of little edges of it, but they're not really aware what where the dissatisfaction's coming from. And um, so whether it's a place, whether it's their situation, whether it's something on their mind, yeah, that there's a there's an energy, I guess, of dissatisfaction and it's and it's quite um, unspecified. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, I'm interested how this dissatisfaction causes us to make decisions or, or just to mull over decisions. And, in fact, often the mulling over, the, the turning around of decisions it becomes its own narrative, I guess. Mm. <laughs> um, in Panthers and the Museum Fire, Jen, the central character, obviously, I guess, named after you, she receives a manuscript from a dead friend 
it's but it inspires her to rediscover her own creativity and um the novel consists of her thoughts as she walks as we said before from glebe uh up to broadway through central station into surrey hills and she meets her friend's sister could you tell us a bit more about this character of yours jen yeah um this is a fictional fictional version i i like this idea of fictional versions that that are not me that could be me like a possible me um i don't name the character but i imply the character's name and um yeah this this is a person who who has been trying to write who's one been wanting to write for a very long time and is very uh, and um and is and when she is the, the the manuscript is foisted on her. She didn't even want this manuscript, um, and it 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 gets foisted on her at the uh, the wake of a friend that um, she didn't even count as a friend and didn't realize that this friend, or according to the the sister of the friend, that she was the, the the only friend of this person, which made it all all the sadder. So she's she had the emotional baggage, if you like, of an, a family's expectation that she could do something with this manuscript. And this is somebody, and this is a person that, in a sense, this, this character, this narrator has um, discounted somebody that she was friend, somebody she was friends with at school, who was, um, they didn't really have a kind of intimacy, but they hung around each other, they, uh, they were good for each other in a certain kind of way in a very kind of avoidant kind of way and certainly not the kind of person that this this narrator expects to have written a manuscript that affects her um so and and as the reader discovers as they're reading it or fairly early on that that the um, narrator wasn't even going to read the the manuscript because she was quite pissed off at being uh, being asked or expected to read the manuscript but it was only when the sister contacts her to say please just return it unread there's a sudden change of heart and of course this prompts the narrator to just read it like what's what's the big deal about this this um manuscript she's just annoyed at being told what to do and this is where the effect of the manuscript if you like starts moving in her, it starts changing the narrator and causes this agitation, this um, restlessness that needs to be given form in, is walking. Um, she has to walk to get there to return the manuscript because she, she was asked to return it at a, at a particular time, particular day, particular place. And so um, she's still very much driven by the effect of this manuscript. Um, I'm very interested in, I mean, I notice that's how I myself read um, books that are important to me, are important to me because of their effect on me. Um, and um, so I, I'm interested, I'm sort of interested to know what this is, if, if we can describe the effect of a manuscript without saying what's in the manuscript. It's um, it's it causes all sorts of thoughts to surface lots of lots of um, um 
thoughts that have to do with the, the narrator's own thwarted, hitherto thwarted ambitions and, um, and judgments of other people and um, frustrations. Um, so all these kinds of uh, grit, bits of grit in her relationship with the world and herself um, get ignited in a sense by this, manus this manuscript that she's got to give back, really. Um, yeah, so I would say this, this narrator is a very restless person. <laughs> mm. um, and I enjoy discovering and giving form to that kind of narrator, that kind of person, that kind of version, if you like, this fictional version of me. <laughs> it's funny because the manuscript turns out to be ultimately a MacGuffin in the book because... We don't even know if she kind of reads the manuscript in the end, do we? Like we find out that, you know, she returns the manuscripts. Um, she's created her own kind of book in the meantime. And I guess there's a kind of almost a selfishness that comes out with the narrator. And um, I find that that part of it really interesting because we do have that ambiguity about, about what her actual intentions are and her creative jealousy um, with mm. this person, you know, creating a manuscript and her jumping on the back of that, I suppose, and, you know, and obviously sharing titles, I suppose, at the end of the day, you know, with this manuscript and with the book that, as it's produced, I think is a really interesting, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful way to do it. I, I love the, um, the ambiguity and the, I guess, that... Um, you know, unreliable narrator that we we have within that book. Yes, see the the I think ambiguity is important. Um, important to me, it's important. It's um, for me. Ambiguity is where something is still alive, where something is still still something lively in my hands, and if something was finished completely. Um, if it was clear what something is, it would be a dead piece of writing to me. I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> simplifying things here, but I, um, as I say that, that seems to be really true. Um, we know that the narrator reads and reads it, but, we, it, but as you say, we don't know how whether she reads all of it. That's not specified. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, it's not really clear. Um, and she also starts writing, and again, what is she writing? So it's not clear that whether that. <laughs> Certainly, the the the, um, the title of the book's the same as the the manuscript title. So, yeah. Um, one of the fascinating parts, especially for people who don't travel down the M4 regularly, is the title, like Panthers mm. and the Museum of Fire. I was familiar with that sign because we used to go to the mountains, basically once a month, probably. And um, that sign we saw on the highway many times. We knew exactly what Panthers were. And the Museum of Fire was a place that we went to once and never went to again. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the relative abject shittiness of these two places uh, <laughs> relative to their exotic names? <laughs> yeah. I, yes. It's even the way Museum of Fire, like rather mm. than a fire museum, is already very poetic. Um, and panthers, yes. I mean, the, the sign itself has changed as 
the book specifies too, because when uh, as I was starting writing it, it was still the sign still said Panthers and the Museum of Fire, and it was so evocative, so extraordinary. And yes, you just drive along, you just turn <laughs> off and drive along this very straight, tedious road lined with um, Harvey Norman and every other large um, warehouse shitty. Um, I was going to say shop, but they're too big for shops. And and the yeah. and Panthers is just a again is it's a big. I mean, it's been done up. Um, I gather, but it's just a very ordinary, um, yeah, football club sort of place. But obviously, very important. I gather it's it you know employs so many people in the outer west of Sydney. So it it must have a kind of I can imagine an exoticism for the people who who win um, plates of meat or whatever they do. <laughs> win, win big on the pokies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of shine there. <sighs> yes, the whole thing about do you follow signs? Do you follow signs that look extraordinary? Um, is, is it better to leave the sign there? Um, yeah. I should mention I should mention that this this particular year the Panthers Rugby League Club is actually the premiers of the rugby league competition as well. So I suppose this year may be a good year for your book hopefully as well. <laughs> yes. I doubt there's anybody who's a devotee of the football club <laughs> who, who would read the who would read the book. Yeah. So I think Okay, zero gram, it's up to you. I think you should sponsor the Panthers Rugby League Club. I think that would be an awesome partnership. Go for it. <laughs> Jim, Jim is a venture capitalist. I'm sure he'll be right in on that ground level. Yeah, make, make a different, maybe not plates of meat, but uh, yes, so say unconditioned that it's plates of books, <laughs> or trays, book trays. Yeah, that, that are. Um, raffled off yeah <laughs> <laughs> briefly mentioned in panthers is the fact that panthers actually does have like a more exotic origin like the the fire museum doesn't the fire museum basically has some fire engines in it but panthers the leagues club and the whole district has a slightly more interesting history which you do briefly touch on about the fact that you know that there may or may not be panthers living in the blue mountains so yeah in katoomba have you ever seen a panther I have never seen a panther. There are quite there are a few. <laughs> there was a, a stray cat, um, which was anything but panther-like. It was actually a long-haired, um, long-haired Siamese, which I just thought was um, someone's exotic pet that just preferred to be outdoors. But I only learned recently it was it was homeless, but has been taken in by a neighbour. Um, that was white. So no, I've never seen I've never seen one. But I live in hope. I live in hope. Um, there, it, there are a lot of dark depths in the um, the gorges of the Jamison Valley and the Gross Valley. I'm sure there are there are creatures there that we have. But I don't know. I have looked up and found images that purport to be. Mm. Um, Perhaps that could be, who knows, a Tasmanian tiger that is, um, that's still, I mean, we have the Wallamai pine in the Wallamai um, forest. 
my great warm <laughs> in the in the Wallamai, we call it really. And um, that's a prehistoric tree that was found not that long ago. And it's their location is secret. So if there's a Wallamai pine, why might not there be a maybe a, a black thylacine? I would think that's entirely possible. Um, I've heard that there are there are still thylacines. I heard um, I heard recently, I think it was on our way, the radio ABC Radio National Program, an Indigenous person referring to thylacines still being around in the Northern Territory. I mean, thylacine, the Tasmanian, well, the, so the, 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 the Latin name, is it Latin? The technical yeah. name of the uh, Tasmanian, Tasmanian tiger, tiger, which is extinct, uh, supposedly, is um, a general term and they were on the mainland and apparently they still are there in Northern Territory. So if there are one of my pines, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are, there are thylacines in the, in the mountains. It's such okay. a huge area. There you go. All right, thylacines and the Museum of Fire coming soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in terms of obligation, I know that uh, I've discussed this with you know, you previously as well. But um, I guess getting your work out there has been a bit of a challenge, um, especially to Australian readers. But now Zero Gamma Press have published Panthers. Is there any possibility of a reprint of After the Accident or maybe local editions of your books? There, um, I think that's still in the works. Yeah, um, I think that's... That's still being looked for, negotiated. I, as as far as I understand, I hope so. I really hope so. Um, I'm fairly sure it's still possible, but it, it's it's not a local edition. It's still the zero gram edition that Glee Books um, in Sydney and Reading's in Melbourne, I think, stock the zero gram edition. And I gather there are still one or two Spinous Wonder editions. <laughs> somewhere <laughs> yeah one more question about your books um the idea of rediscovering art in middle age I think is a big theme in both books can you describe your creative journey how's it been mm. well art for me was my my first most intuitive practice I suppose um I was drawing from a very young age, um, people were. I was always fascinated by people and um, portraits. I did um, portraits constantly. I realise now, on reflection, that it was my only way of being able to concentrate because I used to find it very difficult concentrating, listening to people um, as a child, young adult. So I would draw other people I draw the teachers or draw my classmates and I I've only realized relatively recently that probably kept me focused without that I wouldn't be able to wouldn't have been able to focus um, and so drawing I was always writing to I remember my father giving me a um, exercise book and I started writing serial stories they went clearly not very good <laughs> and I would just get stuck after sort of um, the, the 
third chapter or the fourth chapter. So I was always creating, always thinking of new um, stories and, and just going on for a while, but I wasn't sure what to do with them. Um, and I guess I wrote poetry again. It was something that I seemed to do and I never, I've never considered myself a poet, um, but it, that was something that I did and that was important to me as a child. Um, as um, when I was, I went to university. I was, I I really wanted to go to art school, but I I, I was um, I was kind of encouraged or maybe told to be a lawyer, which I I semi obeyed, and then I slunk out sideways um, without telling my parents that I was no longer enrolling in law subjects. I just finished the arts part. I did the arts arts law and in that stage I was still really divided between visual art and um, writing I was doing I studied Australian literature at the university well, initially it was English and, and Australian literature was a new offering um, under the then chair I think it was then it was a GA Wilkes or I think by then it was Dame Leonie Kramer was already the chair um, it was a fascinating fascinating time to be studying Australian literature and it was wonderful for me and I think really it was coming for me it was coming across a few writers from well actually it would have been my first year at university um, that really ignited my what became my dominant interest in writing um, and also in the short term led to me switching to Australian literature, which was only then being offered as a separate sort of honours stream. Um, so, yeah, I continued on. I was still painting till maybe my mid-20s. And then because I was a bit um, peripatetic at that point or overseas, um, the whole thing is where to put the paintings. I mean, if you paint somebody, um, they take the artwork, they have their portrait, but um, I had an exhibition. It was actually in my honours year. It was not great timing. And, um, and at the same time, I was having a joint exhibition with a friend. So I, I produced lots and lots of paintings and they were kind of medium. They weren't big, but they were, were not small either. And I only lived in a small terrace. And... Um, Although some were sold at the exhibition, um, I didn't know where to put them because a couple of years later we went overseas and I just had to give them away to people. So I think that really prompted me. That was part of what got me much more taking refuge in writing. Writing is a place where I could completely not, not have to worry about anybody else. I could just be in my own space. But I... It also connected with a kind of new point of feeling, um, a new kind of liveliness, because my painting sort of goes back, my drawing went back to being a little child. The writing for me was a kind of me as an adult, I suppose, really taking shape. Yeah. For all of us older people trying to write themselves, at what age did you write your first book? Ah. <sighs> Well, there's a book that is just a manuscript, which I did in my, wrote in my 20s. 
<laughs> and I I did it was in it it's in in TypeScript only because that's was a, it's on a typewriter. Um, I finished typing it in Turkey. Uh, we I actually bought I bought the a typewriter from my because um, I trained as an uh, ES or EFL teacher in London, and my teacher there um, sold me the typewriter. It was one of those portable, I think, Coronas. I've got the right, <laughs> right make. And I typed so much that the letter, the letter um, H, sorry, the letter N flew off. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and because in, in Turkey, I couldn't get another typewriter or I probably didn't want to pay for one or I, who knows, it, I couldn't get soy sauce. There's a whole lot of things you couldn't get. So I just ended up, the last part of the book, I had to type the letter H and I had to liquid paper out the, the, the sticks. <laughs> um, and that manuscript still exists somewhere, I think, in a box, but for some reason I've lost the first page. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, so in my yeah, mid-20s um, I did a manuscript and then there was a big gap. I, I was doing more short stories um, and I really didn't think I could, although I wrote this one, it didn't go anywhere. I It was one of those bottom drawer things that really was in a box um, somewhere pushed to the aside. Um, I was writing short stories and and I sort of loved, I was sort of in love with the form, that kind of very brief um, throw of a form. And then I sort of ran into, I guess, coinciding probably the time I had children there was sort of um less time for that there was a kind of a time when I was writing stories but they weren't really going anywhere and I was sort of in flux I knew I was writing in a different kind of way um and so there's a, yeah there's a big gap between the, that first manuscript and um since the accident which working title was bull now since the accident <laughs> <laughs> can i ask are you working on something at the moment yeah i'm working on something it's evolving um yeah okay and there is, is also something there's also something that postdates panthers that's that you know may or may, or may not find a home soon i hope yeah okay well i hope it does because i i've just I've fallen in love with your writing quite a lot um, in the last six months, and I think that I, I would really love a new book from you. I think I definitely fill a gap in my reading. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Jen Craig. This episode is sponsored by Kimmy Joy's collection of poetry, Mattress Dungeon. It's brilliant. It'll blow you away. If you live in the US and you'd like a free copy, be the first to DM me. I'll send you one out. We're back on Beyond the Zero. Our guest is Jen Craig. All right. Are you ready to talk about your gateway books? Or the gateways. Books that... Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think I was leading towards gateways when I talked about <laughs> books that I was reading. Um, as, a, as a little child, I had these ancient falling apart um, Anne of Green Gables books that were that belonged to my 
my mother's friend, she had a friend called Vivian Pitnery who lived this exotic life in Corfu and who'd given these books to my mum or I don't know, and somehow I got to read them. Um, they were the very, very old editions and um, I just loved those books. So they were they were full of, I guess, there's a, the character Anne Shirley who um, lives a lot in her head and... Um, uh, enacts uh, there's a, there's a scene in one of the books where she sort of she's she gets her friends and um, they they're all to to lie in a barge and um, I think she's dead Ophelia and then there's an accident of course where I think the boat starts to sink so there there's this kind of there was something incredibly magical in that book for me um, I wasn't books were very personal to me. And these were particularly personal and um, they're very personal. I um, I was never read to by my parents. I mean, I learned to read at, a, um, I guess, when I went to school. And um, I have one memory of a babysitter reading to me, but I, I read them. So they, they, were, they were my worlds. They were definitely my worlds and my refuge. So Anne of Green Gables was a gateway book for me. Um, and in, in those books, there were references to other books. So that's where I had a sense, reading those books, I had a sense of Tennyson. I had a sense of um, that there is this, this world out there. So I think I got that, that from, the, the, um, I got that sense of the, the, the world of literature existing, in fact, from Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, I think the next, the next one, uh, yeah, I think I was just out of school. I don't remember being particularly, I remember reading, um, there were a few poets when I was at school, but I gather my, my younger sister had, I mean, I read her copy of David Maloof's um, Imaginary Life. Um, that was, that was extraordinary. And I really it was this, it's a beautiful short book. And I remember being um, astounded by that book. Um, but I'm pretty sure before that I read Christina Stead's A Man Who Loved Children. And that was a really important book to me. And it was so important that I knew I couldn't bear to reread it. Um, I remember it being brutal um, and incredibly true. Um, it's a book that was originally set in Watson's Bay where Christina Stead grew up. She's actually born in Rockdale. <laughs> and then um, I gather and then moved to Watson's Bay and it was set in Watson's Bay or a large part of it was set in Watson's Bay. But when she was, when she was trying to get it published, when she, she'd already, she was already overseas, she left, I think, in the late 20s um, and she was living in, um, oh, at that point when she was trying to get it published, she was in the States. And um, the publisher said, well, well, the publish, publisher encouraged her to change the setting to, the, to America. Um, so it's set in Washington and I think it's Annapolis. Um, but when I read that, I just... 
so it's so it was so meaningful to me. I, I felt like I'd read something that was woke me up. It's like it chiseled something into me I, that I recognized and um it's a strange teeming beautifully ugly book um and um I'd, I'd read some other I've read some other books of hers since I've read um Seven Poor Men of Sydney and um which I just I really love too and For Love Alone um that I wasn't going to reread, but I've I've just been rereading it because <laughs> I, um, I almost had a superstition. I had, I feared that it would not be as exciting and important a book as it was for me. I thought I would be disappointed, but I decided recently to reread it, and I'm rereading it. So, so I can attest it's not just a mirage. <laughs> it's it was. I can see. I can. It doesn't feel exactly the same but I can certainly understand why it was so important to me I think it gave me courage that book it gave me courage to write about things that are ugly and I think that's really important to me I mean Anna Green Gables is the opposite she she romanticizes everything you know something she sees she sees an, a kind of gnarled old tree out the window and that's her um she gives it a romantic name um um something of delight white wings of delight or whatever whatever she calls it so the lake of shining waters it's probably just an ugly old pond but so Anne of Green Gables the opposite um Christina Stead's Man Who Loved Children there's a uh, the main character um well it's, it's it's fascinating and I think that's also why I love it so much is the main there are many important characters you can say Louis the young girl in it but, um she's an early teen girl you say she's a main character but there's so much space given to her mother and her stepfather um and also her one of the brothers the, and um so they're all in a kind of powerful dialogue with each other it's a bit like that Bakhtinian idea that sort of Dialogism. Um, so it's not just we don't. All the characters are, uh, are harshly, beautifully, brutally drawn. Um, and Samuel Pollock, the father character, is I suppose like an Anna Green Gables character, someone who is um, romanticizing everything, and he speaks in baby language to his children. He fancies himself to be this wonderful. Um, person with children um he he sees himself as a conservationist and he loves nature it's very disturbing to read now because you can see how he is the kind of character who resonates with that um sort of eco um so ecological sort of interests wildlife preservation interests that we all have now and yet he's an appalling character. I mean, he he talks about. I just read a bit where he talks about um, he's ex, extolling the virtues of fish, and he talks about you know if you get if you get the popul if out of a population if um, one tenth of the population 
understand the value of fish and um, and the fish in the sea. And um, he, when he talks about ecology, he's talking about, yes, preserving them, but also draining them of their oils and using them for every, every little bit that you can. Um, and he would euthanize the ten, the nine-tenths of the rest of the population. So it's it's it makes for disturbing reading knowing it was published 39, 1940, um, where you have a you have this kind of very uh, romanticized view of nature along with these clearly disturbing um, ideas. And also what there's Louise at loggerheads with her father. He can't understand her and she's trying to do her own thing. And she's not a tidy character, but she's not romantically untidy either. She's just, she's kind of a, a snotty, um, she's often described as having flabby cheeks and, <laughs> and um, yeah, she's, she's equally brutal. And I love it. I love this um, um, conflict between them all and how this creates the engine of the book makes it so alive and makes it such a lively read now um what, what would it be like 60 years after it was first published more i guess isn't it yeah yeah 80 is that right 940 so. yeah 60 80 yes you're right thank you math is not my forte <laughs> <laughs> so that was a gateway book um that, that was another gateway book um uh, what's another one i think i wrote um ah oh. Reading Madame Bovary, um, uh, Flaubert's Madame Bovary. That that was that was really important. Again, the, it was the, the 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 collision between the Madame Bovary's sort of notion of herself and the poisoning scene. I re, it was just I remember reading that the, the and the, uh, the the. The, the the vagrant in the street and the kind of the ugliness of her death it was so, such a powerful wedding experience for me um priest was another one i there's a story behind my reading of priest because when i was traveling in my 20 mid 20s um i had some no nah, I've got some long-term French friends. It all stems from get, from accidentally, if you like, getting a French pen friend when I was fifteen, and I'm still in touch with her, and meeting all these other people who I'm still I'm still I'm still in touch with. And so there was two removes from my original French pen friend. Um, we were travelling with them out into near Chartres, and um, this is a long time ago. Um, going to the village where Anne, my friend. Um, she'd inherited this tiny house without a toilet. I had a, um, a really tiny house in Rouen-sur-Eguen, little, little tiny village. And she, I remember her talking about how this is Proust country. And I knew, I knew what Proust, I mean, I recognise the name Proust, but it meant nothing to me. So in, in the year 2000, when we re, we're visiting them again, um, I thought, Donna, I'm going to read, I'm going to read Proust before I go there. So at least I know what she's talking about. So I must have been 2000 or 1999, yeah, just around then. I started, um, I, I started on the first volume, and then I became addicted to, and then I read all of, <laughs> all of them, um, and he's still an important 
writer for me, I decided I've just got to force my French to be better. So I've, I started reading them in French. Um, I'm only into the second volume, Alarme de Jeune Fille en Fleur, but I thought if I can get through this, obviously it'll take the rest of my life, but maybe my French will get better. Um, yeah. So Proust was, Proust was a huge, it was a gateway book for me too. There's another door open for me because I could see that just like the narrator in Proust, you know, he's trying to write something. He's trying to do something. And this is like the narrator in Panthers. And the, the, um, he, he needs to, the, the, the form needs to come to him. He, he needs to come to the form. He's going, so it's a whole journey of trying to understand what he's trying to, to write and how the world is for the, the narrator. Marcel is completely different from what he thought it was as well. Um, in, it, you talked to, I mean, I guess it's a MacGuffin book. You know, you've got... Um, MacGuffin was your term. The um, the you're, you're, we're reading in search of lost time. The the result of time regained, if you like. So it's like a Mobius band that's been reattached, and you don't really realize where you, there's there's a point where you realize ah you're reading the bit that he gets to at the end of the six volumes. So interesting which is why I wanted to read it again, because when you're <laughs> on a loop like that, you're going to keep going. Yeah. Um, and then the other gateway book, which is an important, another important book for me, is um, Thomas Bernhardt's Gargoyles. I, um, I, when I started, I, I'd read, a, I think I'd read Amras or I read not much else of Bernhardt, but I read Gargoyles. It's not the book that is generally most pointed to by Bernhardt's enthusiast, but it was in the bit of the book where it's, it starts off as a very picaresque book. There's a young man going around the countryside with his father who's a doctor and they're going from one place to another, one variously mad set of people to another. Um, they're, um, it's kind of picaresque, it's kind of gothic in a in a, more like a Grimm's fairy tale kind of way, really. And then they visit the Prince Sural. Um, no, it's not French, sorry, Prince Sural. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. They, they visit a prince and then the prince basically starts speaking and he just entirely takes over the rest of the book and there's no going back to the, the boy's narrative. There's no going back to the, the first half of the book. And when I realised this was happening before, before uh, I really hoped there wouldn't be a going back. I mean, it was so exhilarating to have this book split in two. And, um, yeah, so that was really important for me. And, I, and that book was key to me conceiving of a different form for Since the Accident, um, that I could split it in half and then put the two backs together, if you like, and just have the innards facing out to the reader somehow. That's, they were, they were the important books. Wow. Okay. I, I have heard Bernard 
you know, obviously your books have been compared to his books, I think a little bit recently. So yeah, that's a really interesting comparison. Let's move on to the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to. Well, well, I'm still, yeah, still reading and enjoying um, Proust. Man Who Loved Children and yeah. Proust. Yes, I actually always have a lot of books on the go mm-hmm. and something I'm often embarrassed about because, you know, there's often piles and I'm still going through them. I'm still going through them. Um, I'm, I'm really enjoying Maro Javier Cárdenas's aphasia. Um, how far am I through that? Yeah. It's, um, it's, he's it's it's a it's a book with um there's a narrator and it's it's folding in other voices I think I love that I love where the the voices sort of collide against each other he also brings in fragments of audio um audio um fragments that he's recorded the narrator has recorded himself and also books the way he just touches on and it and it creates this sort of this piece, this, this flowing piece. Um, so I'm enjoying that. Um, I'm reading, what else am I reading? Um, I'm been reading Greg Gerke's book of essays, You See What I See, and I've, I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, his essay collection is fantastic, isn't it? Yes, I love that. Um, I love those kinds of essays that draw in the well, when you're not sure. Yeah, they're, they're, they're personal. When you're not sure, well, so I guess it's personal, but it's not. It's an, where, where I feel what it's like, where I get a sense, where I can imagine what, what Greg feels about these books that he's reading. That's what I love, yeah. So... Um, Yes, I've been reading, um, I'm just trying to sort of think about what else I've got there. I, oh, that's right, I'm, I'm still reading Jack Cox. Whoops. I'm still reading, um, yeah, Jack Cox's Dodge Rose. I, um, and I'm enjoying that. I got, I got a little, I got a little slowed down in the kind of extensive, um, legal um section where the there is discussion of sort of um title title in um land over title the, over <laughs> the will or whatever it is yes there's the, the will but also discussion about broader issues of land title in australia mm. it's it's a fascinating book because it to me it ah i had so much well I, i'm still reading it so there's so much deja vu for me in this book. For me, it has, I, there's a feeling of reading Patrick White. It's like I'm reading um, Eye of Storm or something. Mm. I, it's so strange because I think it's set in the 90s, but it's, um, so it's set in the past, but not that far back. And it also has a little bit of a feel of Elizabeth Haraway in it. I, something about sisters at the mercy of, situations and being in a flat 
yeah and yet it's not just that it's so playful as well so that's kind of fascinating and I'm um yeah and I'm in the middle of Jan Foss's uh, septology I mean well I've read the I read the first two and I really enjoyed that um he's he's a discovery for me um so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the next installment of that um I know I've got some other books on the go too. Um, Did I see that you had a, what did I see your name on recently? Was it Emily Hall's new book? Ah, yes, yes. I, I, re- I, I, was, I was invited to read that to blurb it. It was so brilliant, yeah, The Long Cut. Mm. Yeah. It's incredibly cheeky, playful, um, a very driven book. Um, yeah. That's a really, really interesting book coming out. Because I, I have just, um, I'm halfway through that book now, and you were somebody who immediately came up because I think that you know this character walking yes. to this gallery and and getting stuck along the way, you know, um, I felt you know I was drawn straight back to your work. So yeah, I think it's a really good yes, that walk there. did make me think too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I. I um I felt the difference that she's got a very visual eye. I got the whole thing of the long cut and mm. and the, the character looking out through the window and seeing the movement of the cranes. And I had a sense of some kind of um almost like a Clanner Scotsy sort of film track, you know. I don't know. There's something that's also there which resonates through it. And there's this, I guess, the humor of someone trying to work out what her work was. I just remembered that. Yeah, and I was also, um, I also got to read um, Gabriel Blackwell's book too, which was, um, uh, that was sort of brilliant, sort of Doomtown, a wonderful Gothic um, piece coming out in May, from Zero Gram yeah. soon. Yeah, mm. that is, that is so, so a, a town I'm thinking now it's something Lynchian about it. It didn't occur to me immediately afterwards, but there's this strange objects, um, strong sounds, and, yeah, it's a fascinating narrator in there as well. So they were, yeah, they were great reads. (laughs) Very good. I've got that on my pile of things to read, actually, so I'm looking forward to it. Fabulous, yeah. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Jen's Top 10. This episode is sponsored by the Beijing Winter Olympics. We've had plenty of snow, the Uyghur people are loving it, and there's Peng Shui in the audience. Come to China, visit china.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Jen's Top 10. Okay, my top 10. Okay, I'm doubling up. Uh, I think I'm I'm putting Christina Stead up there. Um, Man, I love children. Yeah, these are, of course, these are all just me. That's what I just like. (laughs) And of course, and I put gargles there too. Um, 
I, I mean, probably ex if I was asked extinction or correction or something, probably I probably have read extinction more. Um, more times, although I'm not sure. But Gargoyles, yes. I've got a great fondness for this book that splits my world in two. Um, I love this short book thing. I know Gargoyles is that. And um, uh, Eleanor Ferranti's um, The um, Days of Abandonment. I, I realise this the energy of the drive of the being stuck. Um, I love that. Um, I read her um, Neapolitan books and I, you know, I, I, I think I borrowed them from the library and gave them back, but I had to have my own copy of uh, <laughs> Days of Abandonment. It, it, it um, really stayed with me as a, as a, uh, a piece of an experience, I suppose, which is what is meaningful for me in the books that I read, I think, that they 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 touch me. And to think of another book that's about whether its experience is important and it's split into, I think, um, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I had to go back to it. It's still a few years ago when I went back to it. Um, that magical moment in the in the middle of the book where it, where time passes, this I realize I must be obsessed with this thing because I notice in my own books, um, I'm fascinated with books which have two parts or just one part, um, and yeah, it still blows me away that that book what 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 she enacts between those two sections. Um, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to also say In Search of Lost Time. This is, I guess, one big book. It was funny, I, when I, um, some years ago, well, it was not that long ago, I was doing my doctorate at um, Western Sydney University and the author Jane Smiley came and talked to us. And I don't know how this came up, but she asked us, asked the room, has it, who, who has read all the volumes of in search of lost time and I put my hand up and um, no one else put their hand up that I could see in that moment and she reached over and shook my head she said shook my hand I should say she said you're the first person I've ever met and I thought surely not then <laughs> someone else said that uh, that um, Anthony Ullman who's the um, the professor there um, had also put his hand up so uh, at the at the end, as, as as they were packing up, I went to him. I said, "But I can't. Believe you put your hand up too. How come she didn't shake your hand?" And he said, "He said, oh look, I put my hand down again." He said, "Um, I, unlike uh, unlike other people, I don't remember <laughs> Fred." And I was thinking, I've been thinking about what he said. Uh, I've probably paraphrased him really wrongly, but I completely understand what he means. Like for me, it's the effect of the book which is what I guess I write about in Panthers, the effect of what the book enables and enacts and becomes for me. Um, yeah. So, yes, the whole, all of it, <laughs> whether you divide into 12 books or six books, yeah, all of it. Um, another short book, Orhan Pamuk's um, The New Life. Um, yeah, that's 
again, another driven um, book that I see as a single throw. Um, it's, it's fascinating. I, I learnt... I learned sometime recently that he came up with the idea of it when he was going when he was at the um, ah, he was in Adelaide and he was in the middle of writing My Name is Red um, and he was there for hmm, I don't know if it was the Adelaide Festival or a writers festival there or maybe part of it and apparently he was he was walking along a beach and the the idea for the new life came to him. Yeah, this is a book which which um, I really relate to, and I and I do connect, and I'm indebted to in um, Panthers and Museum of Fire about writing about the effect of a book, the, uh, the the effect of what it's like to read something and to try to understand what it is that one's been affected by. So, um, his books. It's particularly his earlier books. When when we were living in Turkey, I didn't know of his work, but I discovered them pretty soon after coming back to Australia. So I read most um, of them. The Black Book is wonderful, but I'm just going to pick the new life for this one. Elizabeth Harawa. Um, she was a relative. I don't know why I didn't come across her or how I didn't come across her when I was younger. Um, she's so extraordinary. Um, I would say, I mean, I can't, it's really hard for me to choose between The Watchtower and The Long Prospect. It's a huge shame that she stopped writing novels after, I think, the 60s, apparently after being peeved when she didn't get shortlisted for, was it the Miles Franklin or something? Mm. She, um, she decided she was never going to write again and just play tennis and be a North Shore um, lady of tennis parties I don't know it's I, I can't believe it it's just so extraordinary her books are I guess I could see I could see something as I see in as I in um, Jack Cox's work they've they're beautifully written and they're, um, there's a clear-eyed um, awareness of all kinds of brutal details which I thoroughly love um, and I think there's oh yes um and um, Gerald Manane, I'm, I, it's too hard for me to choose, but the most recent one I've read is Border Districts. And um, it's, I, I just loved it. I loved the way his, for him, the shape and the form and the aesthetic of the book is the most important. And I particularly, I know the plains and those landscape and landscape um, are or had been traditionally his well-known ones, but I really am most fond of his works, you know, the post-Giramondo revival. Um, I think that's when he comes to own his form as um, someone who writes works that um, are aware of themselves as what he calls reports. <laughs> um, and they become something so entirely other. And you have that in Border District where he's the, the, the focus on what it is that the narrator is chasing in, in a kind of um, in a perception, the, the way he's able to contain his whole book in this, in this very um, 
to bring it's like a whole jewel into a very simple short book. Um, I think I still got one more. Um, I'm going to choose Kafka's America, Lost in America. Um, I just so enjoyed that book. I've got two different editions of it. I haven't read the second one. I, when I happened to go to Prague, I picked up the local edition with a different translation, which I'm looking forward to reading. But again, it's something of the picaresque, the gothic, the strangeness of it that really love. Um, and it's the way um, where there's a dream landscape. There's, there's no even pretense. You asked me before about landscapes or geography, and I love how his landscape in America is entirely an imaginary one. Um, I gather he had lots of books um, which he drew on, um, hence this Oklahoma, not Oklahoma, and um, in the books. I love it that that's where his books come from. Um, and I think that's my my own ambivalence, or I don't know, my own ambivalence with landscape or, or geography. I'm very aware of it, but I'm also very aware of my own picture of it, which is not necessarily the same as what um, someone else might um, empirically describe that place as. It's really interesting you say that because I think Kafka in that book especially is so far removed from the real America and I think being uh, removed from place and having this ambiguity about location and geography I think you know it filters through your work as well so great great list and yeah really interesting finish to it thank you all right well we should wrap it up because it's getting late for both of us but um before we go, do you want to tell us where we can go to get Panthers and Museum of Fire? If you're in Australia, I gather um, Glee Books and Readings have, um, have copies there. We can um, available here. I think there's Aerogram Editions and presumably Amazon, those sorts of the internet various internet sort of suppliers have that edition as well yeah and those waiting for your next piece of wonderful fiction how how long shall we wait like when do we expect <laughs> i don't do things? not know <laughs> <laughs> i do not know um hopefully soon Excellent. i hope soon yeah Okay. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'll be the first in line. <laughs> so, um, but thank you so much for chatting. It's been um, an absolute pleasure speaking with you tonight. Thank you so much for having me and um, thank you for your interest. Thanks once again to Jen Craig. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back for your next episode next week.